You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the star defensive tackle for the Washington Commanders. Now that I have Teddy Bedlian's attention, uh, I want y'all to join in with Teddy, all right? Imagine for a moment that you are a star defensive tackle for the Washington Commanders. You have studied the rules of football your whole life. You have watched countless hours of football, and all of your heroes are football players. You have spent countless hours practicing to be a defensive tackle, and you've adhered to a specific diet and a specific workout regimen. And all this practicing was designed to turn you into a particular sort of person. A 300-pound man capable of running the 40-yard dash in under six seconds and bench pressing 225 pounds 25 times. That's what you're training for because that's how you succeed in the game that you're playing. But what if you woke up one day and realized that you were supposed to be an Ironman triathlete? Even though you're one of the top athletes in the world, all your football training has actually deformed you. All that physical bulk is not going to work when you have to run 26.2 miles and you have to swim 2.4 miles and bike 112 miles in a single day. If you wanted to make the change from football player to triathlete, you'd have to launch an entirely different training program altogether. You'd have to find a new diet and exercise regimen, one that would help you to slim down and increase your endurance. You'd have to learn new rules. You'd have to get new coaches. You'd have to fall in love with an entirely different game. Most of us have spent our entire lives studying the economic rules of Western materialism. We have seen countless advertisements that suggest that life is found in unbridled consumption. We've seen our culture celebrate and marvel at the wealthiest and most self-absorbed among us. How else do you explain people that are famous for being famous? We've spent countless hours practicing to be successful by these standards. We've adhered to the mental diets and exercise regimens. And all of this was meant to make us a particular sort of people. Money-crazed narcissists who are capable of ignoring the needs of others in our quest for more. This is what we've been trained for because this, we are told, is how you succeed in the game that our culture is playing. But what if you've come to realize that you're supposed to be a God-glorifying, neighbor-loving, justice-doing citizen of God's kingdom. You'd have to launch an entirely different training program altogether. 
You'd have to find a new diet, an exercise regimen, one that will help you to strengthen godly virtue and trim selfish vice. You'd have to learn new rules. You would need new coaches. And you have to fall in love with an entirely different way of life altogether. In our text for today, the Apostle James delivers an urgent word on wealth. And he does so to encourage his people toward endurance and wholeness. And we're going to approach this text through two points this morning. Here are two points. We must take stock of our deformation and we must take hold of our reformation. We must take stock of our deformation and we must take hold of our reformation. So let's take a look at our first point. We must take stock of our deformation. Now, as he begins this new section of his letter, James goes into prophetic mode to engage the theme of wealth. James here sounds like any number of the Old Testament prophets, if you go back and read those texts. This is the mode in which James is addressing his congregation. He's touched on this theme a few times, this theme of wealth up to this point. But this is his most direct word on the matter. And we must remember that the communities to whom James was writing were largely made up of poor believers. So what James is doing here is rhetorical and it's apocalyptic, okay? Which is to say there's a lot of figurative imagery going on here. He's not talking to a specific group of people within his congregations. He's actually delivering a prophetic word to the wealthy unbelievers out in the world who are oppressing God's people. By uttering these judgment oracles against unbelieving wealthy landowners and giving them a preview of what's to come for them in the final judgment, James intends to stabilize and encourage his poor brothers and sisters, many of whom are suffering under the oppression of these wealthy landowners. He wants to encourage them by reminding them of the coming reversal. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about the coming reversal. The coming reversal is why the gospel is called good news for the poor. Because the tables will be turned. The tables will be turned through union with Christ. Through union with Christ, the poverty of these saints will be transfigured into true wealth. While the oppressive and unjust wealthy will see their wealth transfigured into true poverty of separation from life with God. However... Even though James is not actually addressing these words of judgment to his his people, he is giving us what we need to take stock of our deformation in relationship to wealth. Take a look at verses 1 through 3. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, the first thing we can glean from James about our deformation is that we have been deformed by selfish hoarding. Selfish hoarding. That's what he's getting at in these verses. The idea that their, that their riches have rotted and their garments are moth-eaten. They have hoarded so much. Selfish hoarding. And this is what James is addressing here. The picture of riches rotting, garments being moth-eaten, gold and silver corroding, even though they're base metals, they don't rust. James is saying they will be of no use to you on that day. And this, this is tragically familiar to us in our day, isn't it? The irony in these verses is that the very possessions that the wealthy would use to secure their future and their comfort will not only be destroyed, but they will testify against their owner like the blood of Abel crying out for justice because of Cain's murder. Do you see that in the text? Their wealth will be a testimony against them on that day. I was acquired through injustice. I was hoarded through selfishness. It's going to be a testimony of riches against their possessors. We can hear the echoes of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Selfish hoarding reveals an unbelieving and idolatrous heart. But we can go back even further in Scripture to Exodus chapter 16. Do you remember when the Lord brought down manna from heaven for God's people? Do you remember what he told them? He said, go out and gather as much as you need for today. Don't keep any left over tomorrow because it will spoil. You need to trust me day by day and have confidence that I will provide. I will do for you what I have said I will do for you. And what did some of them do? They tried to keep some because they weren't quite sure that God would be true to his word. They needed to hoard it back. You know, a little retirement, you know, just to make sure that they're comfortable. And it rotted. And the text tells us that Moses was frustrated. He was angry with the people. And not only did they try to hoard some and keep it for the next day against the word of the Lord, the Lord told them on the sixth day, gather double. And don't go out there on the Sabbath. It's time to rest. It's time to believe that I am in control and that I do my people good. And what happened on the Sabbath? People were out there moseying, looking for manna that was not there. And again, we're told Moses was angry. <laughs> you see, even back in Exodus, the Lord was out to form his people to trust him for daily bread. But they struggled. 
And so do we, because we have been deformed by selfish hoarding. But that's not all. Take a look at verse 4. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here, James says that these wealthy landowners were guilty of fraud. They were guilty of fraud. They, they used deception to keep the wealth that should have been given to their laborers. They held back wages from their needy workers who lived hand to mouth, which meant that the workers weren't going to go that day without the daily necessities of life. And so were their families. Fraud is another expression of our deformation. Now, we may not be business owners in here, many of us, and we may not have employees under our care, but all of us know what it's like to use deception in order to maintain our resources at our neighbor's expense. Have you ever had someone ask you for something on the street? And you, oh, sorry, man, I, don't, I can't help. Really? You can't help? You can't buy a piece of pizza or a cup of coffee or a bottle of water? Really? You can't help? No, that's deception and fraud. It is trying to deceive this person to save face and hold on to your resources at their expense. There's nothing to justify it whatsoever when you have the resources to meet the need and do not meet the need. It is fraud. We all know what it's like to turn down someone in need because we're busy or in a rush or we didn't prepare to meet the needs that we knew we would encounter on that day. You knew you were going to come across people in need and you made no preparations to meet the needs that you are capable of meeting. The scriptures and church history indict us on this point. Because greed and materialism are not victimless crimes, according to Jesus. They are against neighbor. And not only that, there is a strong word of the collective voice of the church fathers as they provided commentary on the use of wealth. And they would say things like this. This is what Chrysostom said. Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. This is what Gregory the Great says. When we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. And, and, and quotes like these can be multiplied throughout the church fathers. In other words, when someone comes to us in need and we fail to meet a need that we are able to meet, it's fraud. A deceptive way of maintaining our own well-being at the expense of our neighbors. We have been deformed by fraud. But James doesn't stop here. Take a look at verse 5. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The way that the rich fattened themselves was by luxurious self-indulgence at the expense of others. It's not the simple enjoyment of material blessings that James condemns here. That's not it. Here's what it is. Here's what he's condemning. It's a determined commitment to live in luxury, to enjoy and maintain a high standard of living without regarding and relieving the needs of your neighbors. It's budgeting yourself to 100% consumed by all of your luxuries and you don't have any wiggle room for generosity. And it's killing us. It's loving your fine lifestyle more than you love your neighbors. It's the mindset that says, I'm content to enjoy my amenities while my neighbors live at the extremities. It's a commitment to maintain your standard of living without a robust and sacrificial standard of giving. We have been deformed by luxurious self-indulgence. But James doesn't stop there. Take a look at verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Murder. And we all breathe a collective sigh and say, well, at least I'm not guilty of that one. And James says, hold up. Hold up. To this, James would say, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus said that anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment? Well, what do you think happens when you withhold life necessities from your neighbor that you are able to provide? Murder. A common theme in the early church is that one who can help another and fails to do so is guilty of whatever happens to that person, including homicide. It's squandering and abuse of power. Listen, fam, the problem is not money. Money per se is not the problem. The problem is not having nice things. James is not a Gnostic who rejects the material world in favor of the spiritual world. That's not it. For James, the problem with these deformative practices is their injustice, faithlessness, and worldliness. It's a failure to hear and do the word with respect to wealth and neighbor. Remember, this is James the just talking here. The apostle knows that oppression can take an active or a passive form. Okay? I want you to take this in. Take this in. We talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are sins that we actively commit. We do evil. We lie. We steal. We cheat. We slander. Those are sins of commission. Sins of omission are all the good things that we fail to do. All the mercy we fail to show. All the generosity we fail to extend. 
all the encouragement that we fail to offer. It's sins of commission and omission. Well, listen, there is active oppression and passive oppression. Active oppression is when you use your agency to exploit the poor and marginalized or to provide cover for their exploitation. You can think about uh, chattel slavery and those who got into pulpits and provided theological cover for that evil practice. These, this is active oppression. But passive oppression is when you fail to use your agency to interrupt the exploitation and desperation of the marginalized when it's in your power to do so. It's when we surrender to the darkness, when we throw up our hands and say, well, there's really nothing to be done about poverty. After all, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. I guess I'm going to go out and have a good time at, at the club, right? Like, I guess, you know what? I deserve that, that shiny object there. Never mind them. There's nothing to be done about racism. You know, we, all, we just might as well forget it and move on, right? There's nothing to be done about abuse. No, no. That is surrender. That, that, that leads to passive oppression. It's resignation. An acceptance of the false status quo when we have been called to anticipate the kingdom that is coming. It's acceptance of the false status quo when we have been called to anticipate the coming kingdom. These deformative practices lead us to betray the poor for money. That's what it is. We must call it what it is. It's betraying the poor for money. Failing to do economic justice. Economic justice should be a category for you, Christian. Economic justice is all about how we relate to one another in our economic dealings. But in our buying, selling, saving, investing, working, producing, and trading, we who are so vocal about justice have often found ourselves on the side of economic injustice because we have been deformed by these practices. We, we often expect the government to do what the church has always been responsible for doing. Do you realize that if the church were doing what it were supposed to be doing, we would have no need of welfare in our government? Think about that. That's profound. That's how much capacity and power we have as God's people. And what do we do with it? Are we squandering it? So what's the way forward? We all got lumps on our heads and black and blue eyes because James, again, chose violence this morning. Look, none of us can escape the sting of conviction on these things. None of us. But what is the way forward for us? We must take hold of our reformation, which brings us to our final point. Our reformation begins with the gospel, it is sustained by the gospel, and it will be consummated by the gospel. 
The bad news about us, friends, is that like Judas, we have betrayed poor Jesus for money. And sometimes that betrayal of Jesus shows up in our betrayal of our poor neighbors because Matthew 25 tells us that whatever we do for the least of these, we did for him. And whatever we failed to do for the least of these, we failed to do for him. We have betrayed poor Jesus for money like Judas. And we deserve every bit of judgment that James lays out for the rich in this passage. That is the fact of the matter. But in the gospel, Jesus chose generous giving over selfish hoarding, pouring out the riches of his grace on poor sinners like us. He did not rest until he exhausted our life necessities. In addition to graciously meeting our material needs, he met our need for righteousness. He met our need for forgiveness. He met our need for security. He met our need for belonging. He met our need for mercy. He met our need for resurrection life. He met our need for hope and a future. In the gospel, Jesus chose faithfulness over fraud, holding back nothing from us. He refused to seek his own well-being at our expense and instead secured our well-being at his own expense. He accepted dishonor so that he could honor us. He suffered indignities so that he could restore our dignity. He sacrificially went without so that we could have it all, so that we could have the good life of communion with God and with one another. It wasn't his material wealth that cried out against him. It was, it was his persecutors whose voices cried out against him. But aren't you glad that when he cried out, Father, forgive them, that his voice reached the ears of the Lord. That is good news. In the gospel, Jesus chose simplicity over boundless luxury. He had no place to lay his head. He took the form of a servant, forsaking earthly luxuries and amenities because he loved us more than anything else in this material world. It's an astonishing truth that the Father chose to adopt us rather than to abandon us. That Jesus chose to go through hell for us rather than to enjoy glory without us. That the Spirit chose to renew us rather than to reject us. And in the gospel, Jesus himself was condemned and murdered. And he did not resist so that the poor would always know that they have a sympathetic advocate and defender in him. Jesus was righteous in his economic life. He bought us with a price. He saved our lives. He invested in the renewal of the world. He worked redemption. He produced salvation and he traded us life for death. That is economic righteousness. This is the good news of God's grace. And his grace not only saves us, it changes us. This is the engine of the Christian life. This is the formative power that can reorient our relationship to wealth. Because we live in vital union with Christ by faith, we 
like Jesus, can choose generous giving over selfish hoarding. Because our security, our comfort, our identity, and our worth are in Christ, not in our stuff. We can choose faith over fraud because our God takes care of our well-being so that we don't have to fear running out or drying up. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. Amen? He is more committed to taking care of his children than you could ever be. Think about it. You often, and I often, give ourselves more credit as parents for taking care of our kids than we give to God for taking care of his. You really believe that if you stretch yourself out in faith and generosity that the Lord's going to leave you hanging? You think he's going to let you fall? You think you're going to slip through the cracks on his fatherhood? Don't bet on it. He is dependable. It doesn't mean it won't be challenging. It doesn't mean there won't be sacrifice involved. But in his service, the hymn we sang, pain is pleasure. In his service, loss is gain. All it is is a letting go and a getting free because our wealth has ensnared and entangled us. And this is the way we get free. He will never let you down as you lay yourself down for others. Believe that. We can choose simplicity over boundless luxury because we now have the wisdom from above. And we know that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It doesn't. By the power of the Spirit, our loves can be rightly ordered so that we love our neighbors more than we love our stuff. Our love can be reordered by the power of the Spirit. We can love our neighbors more than we love our amenities and our comfortable lifestyles because he has poured out his Spirit on us. And if you feel the conviction of the Spirit, don't ignore it. Don't tamp it down and go on your merry way. Remember what the text says. Remember the reading of the text. Remember the coming reversal. But we can also choose justice over murder. Because the Lord helps us to repurpose our power. And he gives us fresh eyes to see the humanity and the dignity of the royal image bearers around us. And to welcome Jesus in their presence. That's the new vision that he gives. And he can also give us the wisdom and remember that the one who gives to the needy lends to the Lord. And the Lord repays with interest, fam. That's what the proverb says. But let's get real boots on the ground here. What are you going to take away here? What, how do you actionize from here? I'm reading this book right now called Atomic Habits. Any of you read it? This book is fire. I'm going to tell you something right now. New York Times bestseller. Really great book. And one of the things that the author talks about is what he calls the aggregation of marginal gains. And what he means is this. If you break down any aspect of life into its various parts and you aim for 1% improvement in each of those parts day by day, over time you will accumulate massive transformation. 
And I think that this is what we need to do as it comes to our economic life as Christians. How do you, what, what, is, what is your budget? How do you spend your money? What does your giving look like? How have you arrived at an amount to give? Has community been able to speak into it? Remember, we've said this all the time. I've said this to y'all on a number of occasions. Throughout my years of ministry, I've had a number of people who have come and talked to me about some of the deepest, darkest sins you could ever imagine. And not until I said this once in front of people did I get anyone come to me and talk about their sin of greed or their hoarding or materialism. This is a significant point of spirituality for the Christian life. So seek the aggregation of marginal gains as it comes to generosity and being free from your acquisitiveness, hoarding. Economic justice, what does that look like in your life? How can you improve on your generosity? Maybe you make the decision to take out 20 bucks and break it up into however, whatever denominations, $1 bills, $5 bills, whatever. But that is something that you work into your budget so that whenever you encounter Jesus on the street out here, you are ready to meet his needs or her needs. Maybe you just establish a personal practice where you never, ever, ever refuse someone basic life necessities when they ask. I can't tell you how many times I've had the opportunity and the privilege. And guess what? Guess who came out the winner and all of that? This guy, right? And now I have a bunch of friends who I know and they know me. And it matters to them that they are known and that there is someone looking out for them. They know to meet me at the appointed place at the appointed time every week. And I will be there to meet whatever needs I can. It has been such a gift to me. I'm telling you, the, the joy has been mine. Truly. That is not Christian speak. It truly has been mine. But are you planning to establish practices that will help you to live in economic justice? Have you thought about simple redirects? Hey, man, you buy me a pack of smokes? No, I'm not going to buy you no smokes. But if you need food or drink or clothes, I will, do, I will get you anything to meet your basic necessities. Can I get you a sandwich? Can I get you a drink? Little things like this. It's not heroic. It's basic Christianity. It's the way Christians have always been throughout the ages and around the globe. This is our inheritance. But also... Think about the aggregation of marginal gains as it comes to simplicity. What's in your closet right now? What have you not worn for a really long time that could be on the body of someone barely clothed? Anything? How many pairs of shoes do you got? I'm preaching to the preacher as well, okay? How many pairs of shoes do you got? What kind of items do you have just like wasting away that... Pretty, pretty much in five years, you're going to be like, I'm just going to throw this out. You're going to throw it out anyway one day. It's just sitting back collecting dust. Simplicity, fam. Simplicity. And, and when the church fathers back in the day, when they talked about almsgiving, they weren't talking about giving the poor the loose pocket change that you had. They were talking about your life being captured by simplicity 
so that the, the extra that you have could be given to meet and relieve the needs of those who are suffering dire straits. That's what they meant. Another thing that I found really helpful in this book, Atomic Habits, is, is, he, is the author said that the most effective way to change your habits is to focus not on what you want to achieve, but on who you wish to become. Sound familiar? That's why I like the book. Focus on who you want to become. Do you want to become more greedy, self-indulgent, and blinded to what your wealth is doing to you down the road? Or do you want to become someone who's generous, someone who is free from the idol of mammon, as Jesus called it? Someone who enjoys the real delight of God because you are starting to give like he gives. Simplicity and generosity. It's more important, the author of Atomic Habits says, it's more important to focus on your systems than your goals. And this is what he says. He, he says something to this effect. He says, this past year, every team in the NFL set the goal to win the Super Bowl. But only one actually won the Super Bowl. And goals are not enough to get you there. He says, but if you focus on your systems, you will actually start to move towards your goals, whether you actually set those goals or not. Focus on your systems as it relates to your spending and your buying and your, your, your use of, of your material resources. The aggregation of marginal gains. He says that you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. You don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. If you do not plan to put this into action, if you do not work to establish new habits, to form new practices and habits, it will only be well-wishing. I'm reminded of the practical word of C.S. Lewis, because everyone wants this like, just tell me what to do, just tell me what to give. And here's the thing. Lots of church fathers would, would treat 10% as the bare minimum, all right, as the bare minimum. But I like the way that C.S. Lewis gets after it. Listen to Lewis. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, listen to me carefully. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Do you at all feel the pinch of your giving, Lewis says? If you don't, you're probably not giving enough. The only safe rule is to give till it hurts, is what Lewis is saying. But the bottom line from this text of James this morning is that I want us to train for kingdom life rather than lifestyles of the rich and famous. 
so that we can be the God-glorifying, neighbor-loving, justice-doing citizens of God's kingdom that we, we're always meant to be. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.